turn in our Bibles this morning to Hebrews chapter 13, Sunday morning, studying the book of Hebrews together. If you're with us this morning and you don't have a Bible, there are men coming up the aisles right now with Bibles. Just wave and get their attention. They'll get a Bible into your hands and you'll have the double blessing of hearing the Word of God and then also reading it with your own two eyes. And so... Uh, And then please, if you don't own a Bible, we want everybody to own a Bible. God wants everybody to have a Bible, so make that Bible a gift from the Lord to you today. Hebrews chapter 13, three verses this morning. The word of the Lord, "Let let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing some have unwittingly entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are also, are in the body also. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for this passage of Scripture. And because it's in your book, we just acknowledge that it's important to you. And because it's important to you, it's important to us. And Lord, we got this big world out there that is working 24 hours a day to conform us into its own image, to get us to adopt its, its principles and its values. And Lord, we're thankful for every bit of your word that not only challenges all of that, but is even greater than that influencing force. And, Lord, to take and fashion our lives after what you know they need to be and what you know our lives need to be at this time in human history. And so we pray that you take these three verses, open them up to us, show them the place that they have in our relationship with you, and then teach us, Lord, about how it is that they're to operate through our lives and the influence that you want us to have in the world as a result. And so bless us. Speak to us, we pray. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. At the end of chapter 12 of the book of Hebrews, the Holy Spirit warns us that everything that can be shaken in this world is ultimately going to be shaken. And it's going to be shaken by God. And it's going to be shaken for a purpose. He is going to expose the instability of a world that is determined to and increasing by the day in opposing His way and His will and His purposes for this world and for the people of this world. This world does not belong to the President of the United States or to the Senate or the House of Representatives. Europe doesn't belong to the European leaders. Africa doesn't belong to the African leaders. We all rent here. We all lease here. The world belongs to the Creator. He's created it for a purpose. He's created it with 
reasons, things that he wants it to accomplish. There is, um, it's supposed to run a certain way. And when man hijacks these things from God and then begins to operate in a way that's completely contrary to God's definitions of right and wrong and holiness and these kind of things, then you're building a world that's unstable. And God knows that it's unstable. To fight against God's Word and His commandments, to fight against God in this world, is to fight against all of creation. We've been created by God for a relationship with God. All of creation has been put into place in order to facilitate that relationship. And you now take that relationship away, and then you now tell people it's... Life is not about a relationship with God, but it's about finding pleasure or self-absorption or becoming addicted to sin or whatever the thing is that the world is pushing at the moment. You put people now where they have to fight against morally, spiritually, emotionally, intellectually. They have to fight all of creation to go in that direction. No, no, no wonder why people are breaking down and collapsing. No wonder why they can't make the drugs fast enough. No wonder why illegal drugs are just flowing all over the place. No wonder why people are getting bombed all of the time that don't know the Lord. To go against God all of the time and how He's created things to be, it takes a terrible toll. But the world is determined to do that, and you see that. I mean, we think that the greatest problems today, again, we've talked about in the past, talk about we're looking at the world in the United States of America and probably the greatest thing that everybody's looking at and wondering about is how we got to get these economies turned around, the economy, the economy, the economy. And I'd love to see the economy be as strong as it's ever been. I don't have a problem with that at all. But the economy isn't what alarms me about the world, not supremely. What alarms me is the moral and spiritual direction of the world. And how fast it's moving away from God and it's building itself on its own philosophies, its own ideas, its own rebellion against God. And when God looks at a world and says, that world is now competing with me, the creator of all of these people in the world, for the hearts of these people, then I know how to deal with that. I know how to shake that false world, that unstable world, and expose it for the unstable and foolish thing that it is for a purpose. In order that, in shaking man's philosophies and man's ideas and man's rebellion and everything that's built upon that in the world around us, which is most of the world around us today, even including the religious world, so much of which that is absolutely lived in contrary to Christ and teaches in a way that's contrary to Christ. And God says, I know how to shake that, and I will shake it, to expose the instability of it so that those that are invested in those kingdoms can then see a kingdom that is never shaken. And that is the kingdom of God. And God is going to do that. And we are feeling the birth pangs of that, which will continue all the way until 
the Lord sets his kingdom up in this earth. And so we sense this shaking, and people get freaked out, even as Christians, at the shaking, the instability of the world. What shoe's going to drop next? And here I am, and you tell me that I'm a, a member of the kingdom of God, and I'm a part of a different kingdom, but it sure seems like I'm affected by this other kingdom, and it doesn't seem like the kingdom of God is as, as safe and insulated as I need it to be. It is. The kingdom of God is called the kingdom of God Because it has a king. There's a king over our kingdom. When we come to know Christ and we become part of the kingdom of God, there is a king who is all-powerful over this kingdom. He is perfectly wise. He is omnipresent. He's everywhere all at the same time. There's nothing too difficult for him. And he is exceedingly faithful. He is not going to allow both kingdoms to be unstable at once or rock them both at once because then what good is that going to do in people's lives if they just see everything shaken? No, He will shake what needs to be shaken so that when the world sees what they have invested their whole lives into, their whole mental process, emotionally invested in, materially invested in, when they see that shake and then they see something that isn't shaken by the same circumstances of life sitting over here, that it'll get their attention and say, what is it that makes this kingdom different? And how do I become a part of that kingdom, the kingdom of God? And so God is shaking the world in order that people might then see God's faithfulness in our lives and through our lives and realize that's something different. That's the place that I need to be in my life and my family needs to be in the midst of the nuttiness of the world and the instability of the world all around me. Now, if that the stability of the kingdom of God is intended to be noticed by those that are fully invested in the kingdoms of this world, then it must mean that when they look at the kingdom of God and they look at your life and my life as a Christian, that they see something entirely different from what they see in the world. They need to see a kingdom that is very, very different. They need to see a people who are different. They need to see a people who are stable when nobody else is stable. So we can sit down and say, all right, the world is going to, it is shaking. We feel the birth pangs of it right now. We're a part of the kingdom of God. And the great tendency for some of us, some of us are doers, type A's, go, come on, let's move, move, move. God's given us some orders and let's fill in the blanks for them. So we're the kind of people that would look and say, all right, we're to be different. And so we'll start to fill out a list of how we can be different from the rest of the world so that our lives will then be attractive to them and the kingdom that we're a part of will be attractive to them. And they'll recognize it as a place that's secure, a place that's safe. So people do this all of the time, even within Christianity. And so, okay, what's going to make us unique in the world as a Christian is uh, we're either going to wear makeup or not wear it, or we're going to dress like this or we're not going to. We're going to do this with our hair or we're not going to do, or we're going to, you know, this. And all of these things that we come up with, which are meaningless 
in, in terms of people seeing something truly attractive about our lives. So God wants us to be different, but He wants us to be different in a way that makes a difference, a way that is significant for the world to see, so that when all of that shakes over out there, they can look and say, okay, this is entirely different from this other kingdom that I'm a part of. And thankfully, the Lord defines how He wants us to be different. This is why it's a great mistake for Christians to believe that we're going to reach that world out there by becoming like it or that this church is going to reach the world by becoming like the world. That's not how God operates. How God operates is He produces such an entirely superior quality of life in a human being that is so different from what the world produces and the philosophy of the world produces and the sin of the world produces and the addictions of the world produces that it is that difference that gets the attention of the world. And today everybody's trying to become exactly like the world so they'll all like us and think we're hip. I have never been hip. I have never been paralyzed with the... Well, maybe in junior high for a couple of months I tried to be hip, learn how to dance for the tri-school dance. I'm glad that only God saw that. But I'm not plagued by it. But the fact of the matter is, is that there is to be a distinction between our lives as members of the kingdom of God and the, and the citizens of the other kingdom. Not because we're better intrinsically than anybody else, but it is that great distance that then allows people to look and say, yeah, there is a difference between their life and my life, and I think I'm liking what I'm seeing in their life. I think I'm getting sick of the kingdom that I've invested in. We are to be different in the way God has called us to be different, and then God is to make that powerful in the world. We don't have to try and reach the world in that kind of a way or to overthink all of it. We just have to become and be what we're supposed to be as Christians. And then God will do much with that difference. And so He defines through the remainder of chapter 13... What we're to be like as Christians is a member of His unshakable kingdom that will make us truly and in a meaningful way different from the citizens of this world and different from the kind of person that this world produces. And so he tells us here some of those differences and we'll begin by looking at uh, three of them this morning in uh, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 13. And the first thing that he tells us in order for us to be distinctive and different, but in an attractive way, in a meaningful way, he tells us in verse 1, is that we are to let brotherly love continue. His kingdom is to be marked and characterized by a brotherly love that we have for one another as Christians. Now, you tell me how different 
True brotherly love operating in the body of Christ. What a contrast that will be to what's happening in the world all around us today. The Bible says that in the last days, the world is going to become brutal. It's going to become fierce. I watched that increase by the week. I can't believe how people treat one another. I can't believe how they kill one another. I can't believe how it's not enough to kill someone. They have to kill them in certain ways. I can't believe the lack of love, the incivility everywhere, how coarse the culture has become, how unfriendly, how unloving the world is becoming. And God says if we as Christians will take seriously the importance to Him of loving one another as brothers, that that will be make a huge distinction between the kingdoms of the world and the kingdom of God and will have a huge impression upon them. Whether they come into the kingdom or not, that's between them or God. But they'll know there's a difference solely on the basis of brotherly love. And he uses the Greek word there that's used for love is the word phileo or Philadelphia, and it speaks of a warm, committed family love. And he's telling us that we're to regard other Christians as family and to love one another as members of the same family. That's what he's telling us. And why would he tell us to do this? He doesn't, he doesn't say that they weren't doing it. He says they were to continue doing it. In other words, some of them were thinking about moving away from this a little bit. And why would he speak to us of, of this need and of loving one another in this same way? I think the reason is because every one of us as Christians is in need of a family. We are in need of the warmth and the acceptance and the love that is found in a family. And that's disappearing too, isn't it? But God wants it to be seen in His kingdom. And I know that I need the warmth and the acceptance and the encouragement of a family in living my Christian life. I've walked with the Lord since 1980, so I'm like heading into my third and fourth decade. (laughs) And it's wonderful. But you would think the longer you go, the less you would need Christian fellowship. I mean, I know a lot of stuff now. I've experienced a lot of stuff now. I've got a relationship with God today like I've never had before. And I trust that next week, by God's grace, if I stand before you again, I'll be able to say the same thing about my relationship in comparison to what it is today. And you'd think that the older a person gets or the longer they become a Christian, the more independent they would become concerning fellowship or to look and say, no, I don't need it or any of that. I find the opposite is true of me. I can't wait to get to church. You say, yeah, you're preaching. No. If coming to church, (laughs) that's why I don't want to come to church. (laughs) I'm doing this to be obedient to a calling. I can't wait to get around God's people. I need a church family like I've never needed a church family before. 
And I think I'm not the only one in that. The world that we live in isn't an easy place for a child of God to live in. It just isn't. I don't want to bum you out if you're still in your teens and your 20s and your 30s and everything is rosy for you. Keep enjoying yourself. Keep those glasses on. But the world's a fallen place. And it can be a hard place for a Christian to live in. We face all of the challenges that everyone else in the world faces that, doesn't, that don't know the Lord. We face the threat of violence and crime as much as they do. We are just as susceptible to layoffs because of economic downturns as a person that doesn't know the Lord. We're just as susceptible to sickness. We have the same challenges in our marriages and in raising children that everybody else faces, even more than just as much as anybody else that's in the world. And you can just continue that list. But on top of all of those things as Christians, we face challenges that someone that doesn't know the Lord doesn't face at all. Spiritual warfare. They don't know anything about that. Going against the stream, the moral and spiritual stream of this world. They don't know anything about that. They're in a free float. I remember it in my own life. I'm not better than anybody else. But it takes something emotionally and mentally and physically and spiritually to go against the moral and the spiritual stream of a fallen world around us. And we do that all day, every day. And sometimes we just get so used to it and and God gives us that strength, but we don't realize a lot's being drawn out of us. More is being drawn out of us in the fallenness of this world than someone that doesn't know the Lord. We get ill as much as anybody else that's going to get ill in life. We get sicknesses, serious and less serious ones. We face a constant pressure to compromise our obedience to the Lord. We face the added challenge in raising children of not only raising them to become responsible adults in, in life, but then to raise them to be able to stand themselves against the wrong directions and flow of this world. And on and on that list goes. And I think it's important to remember, and that's why I repeat it fairly frequently, to realize that every single Christian you run into, and I run into, that is walking the walk and talking the talk is paying a price to do that in this world. They may never wear it on their sleeve. They may never tell you what's going on. But again, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, physically, relationally, even in terms of uh, prosperity or in terms of material things, they pay a price for walking with the Lord. And yes, the blessings of knowing the Lord and being a part of this kingdom far outweigh all of the, the price that we pay. I mean, there's no comparison at all, but all of that is still there. And when we live in a world that's unaccepting of our beliefs and our lifestyle and even hostile to all of that, we need a larger family. 
What do we do when we're thrown out of our family because of our faith in Christ? What do we do when we become the oddball? Nobody wants anything to do with us, and we know it. They tolerate our presence here or there and this and that, but we realize, you know, for me to walk with the Lord and to do it seriously and even to do it lovingly toward my family and all means, I need another family. Because in terms of warmth or acceptance or love or encouragement, that isn't coming from here anymore. And we need a family to replace that family, and we need a family, period, in life as Christians, a family that will encourage us, look after us, take care of us. And all of that is very, very real. That's a real need that we have in our lives. God knows that we have that need, and He's provided for it by making us as Christians into a family. Jesus, one time, they had a rich young ruler come to Him, so He's rich, he's young, and he's a ruler, which means he's powerful, he's got position. Now, that's, that's the dynamic trio. That's supposed to make you everything you need in life. You've got money, you've got power, you're young, you've got your youth. What's holding you up, buckaroo? Go explore all of it. That's the definition of success. Why you still got a... a sense of emptiness in your heart and that there must be something more to life. But he did. And he came to Jesus and he said, what must I do to inherit everlasting life? And he's expecting Jesus to give him a list. Jesus began to speak to him about the commandments and all. And then Jesus, looking at the uniqueness of this young man, he didn't say it to everybody, but he knew that for this man, his riches would be the thing that would keep him from coming to God and completely surrendering to God, his life to the Lord. And so he said, here's what you need to do. This is what keeps you from coming into the kingdom of God. You need to sell everything you have and give the money to the poor, and then you come and follow me. We don't know what decision he made, but we're told what his reaction was in the Scriptures. It says he became very sad over what Jesus said, for he had much possessions. And as the young man walked away, Jesus then spoke to the disciples and spoke about the fact of how hard it is for a rich man to enter into heaven. Not impossible, hard. And the reason that he, in Jesus, the explanation that he gave is because of the love for riches and the tendency to trust in riches and how hard it is for a person to move from trust in riches to putting their trust in God. And Peter, he's listening to all of this, and he watches this rich young ruler walk away from Jesus, and he said, See, we have left all and followed you. And they had. The disciples had. And then Jesus said to to the disciples, He said, Verily, verily, I say to you, there's no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this life houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions 
in the age to, and in the age eternal life. So what he promises to every single one who becomes a Christian, whatever price you have to pay in terms of family or relationship, however great it might be, whatever loss you're going to occur there, I'm going to bring you into a family that is a hundred times bigger than the family that you've left. And I'm going to make that family so great to you that it'll be a salve or an ointment to you on the loss that you're experiencing because of the rejection of your physical family. That's what Jesus promises to every single Christian, that when they come into that when they come to know Him, they will come into a family. And when I read that, it makes me realize that I have a responsibility as a Christian to set that tone in the body of Christ. If Jesus recognized that we have a need to be a part of a family and have an even greater need to be a part of a family as Christians, then I realize that I want to be a beneficiary of being a part of that family, but I also realize I've got to have a family love toward everybody else in order that this can be what God knows that we need it to be in our lives as Christians in the fallenness of the world that is all around us. And so I said to the Lord, Lord, help me to keep that promise to your people. Help me to be a part of you keeping that promise. And, and he keeps that promise as we uh, let brotherly love continue in our lives. Now, one of the things about families and even the body of Christ, not everybody in the family is that easy to love, are they? You keep that amen to yourself, but I mean you know. (laughs) There are some very kooky Christians, aren't there? There's some very demanding Christians. I mean, it's a, go- it's a goofy old thing called the body of Christ. I love it. Christ loves it. It's his bride. Sorry. <laughs> but it would be so easy to say, yes, to have this brotherly love, this family vibe in a church and in the body of Christ as a whole, if everyone were exactly like me. And that's a problem, isn't it? Now, one of the things that happens... It, and, and it's another thing, advantage of growing a little bit older. And all, all those advantages are spiritual. None of them are physical. Is that you come to appreciate the diversity of the body of Christ. The diversity of mankind, but especially the diversity of the body of Christ. And sometimes early in our Christian life, people that are different from us, they can drive us crazy. It's frustrating. It would be so much easier if they could see it my way and all. And then after a little while, you realize, God forbid that everybody saw it my way or everybody was just like me or this was all monolithic. And we begin to appreciate the diversity within the body of Christ. But it requires love with that, in that kind of, of a diversity. And so... You've got all of this 
diversity. You've got different gifting and callings that God has on people's lives. And with that, they've got different focuses and emphases to what they think is important in the body of Christ. You've got every kind of different personality in the body of Christ as you'll ever find in the world. And you've got this mixing of cultures and backgrounds and all of these different things. And so how does God keep all of us united? And more than that, to how does He cause us to possess a warm, sincere family love for one another? And how He does it is by supplying us with a commonality that is infinitely greater than the differences that we all have that might cause us to lose our love for one another. It's interesting to me, uh, and I think for us to realize, that the Greek word that's used for brother in verse 1, it means from the same womb. From the same womb. That's interesting, isn't it? There is a love that people have for those that have been born out of the same womb that they were born out of. There's a family love because of the common experience of having been born of the same woman. And the writer is saying that in the same way, every Christian is united by an even greater birth, a spiritual birth, by being born again spiritually when we trusted in Jesus as our Savior. And that's the greatest miracle that a person can experience is to be born again, to have God Almighty and the person of the Holy Spirit come into our lives and now give us the capacity, bring a new nature into our lives, give us a capacity for relationship with God. And you, we think about the wonder and the power of brothers and sisters united physically by a single womb. And I mean that the, an amazing and a unique having in common. But then think about the spiritual birth that's ours as Christians because of that, that blood-covered Savior on the cross at Calvary, His death, His burial, and His resurrection. And how much greater a bond can exist and should exist between those who have been born out of that. Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes of some of the things that unite us as Christians and these things that are so significant and so great as opposed to all of the relatively minor things that keep us separated or we want to divide over within the family. And he lists some of them. He reminds them and us that we are one body as Christians. One body. There's only one body in the whole wide world. And that's the body of Christ that includes every single Christian. In heaven, God doesn't care about assembly of God. He doesn't care about Baptist. He doesn't care about Presbyterian. He doesn't care about Methodist. He doesn't care about denominational or non-denominational or Calvary Chapel or any of these other things. It doesn't matter, and it shouldn't matter to us. 
We should go to church where God wants us to go to church because He's directed us there and because the church is biblical in in its model and what it's doing. But no matter what Christian we run into anywhere in the whole wide world or whatever particular group or subcategory or what, it doesn't matter. We are one body. Every single one of us as Christians are a part of the same body. He said that we are indwelt by the same Holy Spirit. We are headed for the same heaven. We share the same Lord, the same Jesus. We share one faith. That is, we have in common a born-again spiritual experience of having put our faith in Christ and now being born again spiritually to know God. Each of us has publicly identified ourselves with Jesus before the world and we share our Heavenly Father with every other Christian in this world. We share the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit with every other Christian in this world. Now that's quite a commonality. That is quite a womb to be born out of spiritually into this world. The fact of the matter is we really, really need each other and we have a need of a family in this world, a loving family, to provide us with a sanctuary in the midst of the storms of life and the acceptance and the understanding and the peace and the joy and the safety and the love that the body of Christ provides to us, that this family provides to us. We need this family And God knows that we need this family. But He also knows that the world needs to see it. Say, when is He going to scold us now for the fact that we're not doing it? I'm not going to do that because I don't know that. And I don't believe that about this body. It's enough for us to know that, to realize I have a need for this to be what God wants it to be, and that is a loving family. And because I have a need for it to be that, I have a desire then to invest myself in it in a way that makes it be that, not only for myself, but for other people. And then to realize that there's a whole world out there watching to see if this kind of diversity in background, in interest, in gifting can be held together and united and kept together as a family. And then the knowledge that if that happens, then maybe God is real and maybe that's a kingdom I want to be a part of. Now notice second, he tells us in verse 2 that we're to be hospitable to one another. So this brotherly love is to manifest itself in showing hospitality to one another as Christians. He says, do not forget to entertain strangers for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. So who are these strangers that we're supposed to entertain or show hospitality to? It's not talking about taking somebody off of the street that we don't know anything about, bringing them into your home, saying good night, and leaving your door unlocked and then going to sleep. It's not talking about that. That would be very unwise and it would be very, very unsafe. 
It's speaking specifically of showing hospitality to any believer who is in need of hospitality. And it's telling us that as Christians, we're to be a people that is known for that kind of hospitality, of taking care of our own. Blessing and loving the world, yes. But I'm not talking about that this morning. But to be known as a group of people that says, you know what? Those people take care of one another. They look after one another. Do you realize how powerful a witness loyalty is today? Where has loyalty gone? Who's loyal anymore? Who even uses the word anymore? Who extols it as a virtue anymore in the culture? And when people see this kind of a loyalty, this kind of a concern for other people, there's a powerful impact. There's a great need in the ancient world. It's true today as well. But in ancient times when you'd be traveling, speaking about entertaining strangers, it'd be open your house up to them and look after them as Christians. So people would travel in those days like we travel today. They just would do it on foot or by mule or horse or something like that. And so when you would travel from one place to another, you might, and it's going to take a distance that is going to involve spending the night somewhere or two or three nights in different places to get where you're going, where you're going to stay. Well, they had inns in those days, but sometimes villages were so small that you'd be traveling through that there wouldn't be an inn at all that would be there. You'd be completely at the mercy of someone opening up their home to you for you not to sleep in the countryside. And so how what a blessing for a Christian to be coming through a village like that, to be identified as a Christian and then be invited into the home of a Christian. In the cities that were a little bit larger where they actually did have inns in these locations, oftentimes the inns were very, very expensive. And especially for a group of people called Christians who are being persecuted from one end of the Roman Empire to the other, it's not like they've got you know, $89 in their pocket to just spend on at the local inn on the way to doing whatever it is that they're doing. And so these were expensive. And so somebody could say, hey, there's no need to rent something. I've already got a roof over our head and the food's going to be made anyway. You come in into our, our home. And the inns were notorious for being filthy in terms of hygiene and cleanliness. And they were also known to be very, very common for them to be centers for sin where drunkenness would occur, prostitution would occur. And what Christian would want to get, go into an inn and put themselves in the middle of that kind of uncleanness to say nothing of the middle of that kind of temptation when some a Christian could easily enough open up their home to them and they could come into that home. You think about a home. We don't think about it that much related to our homes. But because we are Christians and we walk with the Lord, there's a presence of God's Spirit upon our homes. And when a Christian comes into any environment in the world that is a kingdom environment, you could, I mean, you can trudge through Europe or whatever and you're like behind enemy lines in terms of spiritual warfare. What in the world? I know they've got lots of cathedrals around here, but this is a crazy old spiritual environment that I'm in the middle of. 
And then you walk into something that's truly set aside to the kingdom, into a church, into a Christian's home, and you realize, I've walked into something that belongs to another kingdom. And it's very, very powerful. And it's very, very needed. And so these the necessity of hospitality in order to look after one another in this kind of a way and, and, and to have a spiritually safe environment to come to and for that to be a blessing. I, I tell you, I, I, I've had the blessing of, of traveling all over the world. I've been in so many hotels and so many motels, and I'm not complaining. I'm thankful for anything. I have a sister that uh, we had, thinking about Las Vegas, I do a lot of that. Just kidding. (laughs) But you know how we think about Las Vegas, the strip and the whole deal, and, and there's a whole background with my family related to that. But a couple of years ago, an elderly member of our family was... He was going to die, and uh, quite elderly. And so it was a last chance for the family kind of come together. Las Vegas was the place to have that happen. And all it didn't work for my schedule to be able to go there, though I would have loved to have been a part of the whole family thing that was going on and all. And my older sister, who as soon as all of it was over and she invested herself completely in it, had a great time but could not wait to get to the airport and get out of Las Vegas. And she said to me, and it's my own convictions forever, and I've been there. She said, is there any place that is so devoid of a soul as Las Vegas? You feel it in your bones. Now, I know there's churches in Las Vegas and all these kind of things too. There's a kingdom dynamic that, 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 that is there as well. But I think you've got a hotel room or a motel room, ancient world today, whatever, all things being equal, put me in the house of a saint because of the presence of the Spirit. And to say nothing of the fellowship and the iron sharpening iron that occurs and the developing of a new relationship or a deeper relationship and the importance of hospitality. And he tells us that there's, in, in showing hospitality to others that are in need, whether it's opening up the house or inviting for a meal or whatever it might be, there's the exciting possibility of also entertaining angels. Well, that's, that could be exciting. That'll get the kids excited about having someone come over. A lot, of course entertained angels unaware. So did Manoah and his wife were the parents of Samson, examples in the Old Testament. And so the idea is that whenever we show hospitality to someone else in the body of Christ, there, God is never going to be outdone. He will always bring blessing as a result of it. And sometimes I think it's important for us to realize that over time as Christians, our sphere of of hospitality can narrow and narrow and narrow until it's only including those that we know very, very well and that we're super comfortable with. And a passage like this reminds us to break out beyond that and include include other people in the family into that blessing 
as the Lord would direct because there's a great need for it. Jesus said that when you give a dinner or a supper, don't ask your friends or your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they can't repay you. And there is a blessing in that, isn't there? For you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now the final point that he makes here in this brotherly love in verse 3 is that it is to be shown in never allowing a single member of the family to be overlooked or to be forgotten. I was watching television. Uh, it taped a show, uh, Jake Tapper. Um, I like him as a news person. And so he's gone over to CNN and uh, they gave him, allowed him to do a special report on uh, a show that was called The Outpost, an untold story of American valor. And it documented the actions of a staff sergeant at the time by the name of Clint uh, Romesha, who was in, in his actions at an outpost, American military outpost in Afghanistan. And because of his actions on that day, he's been awarded the Congressional Medal of Honor, which is the highest military honor a person can uh, receive. And the story, as I'm watching it, is just riveting on all levels. But you hear it over and over again in terms of military people speaking. And it came up as he was being interviewed as, as well. And, and you just, I was just left impacted once again with the determination of our men and women in uniform to never leave a man behind. No matter what, you never leave a comrade behind and you never, ever allow them to be forgotten. And I think it has something to speak to us as Christians. The prisoners that he's speaking about here in verse 3, they refer most specifically to Christians who have been imprisoned for their faith in Christ. They didn't steal their neighbor's car and happened to be Christians and now are in prison. These are people who are imprisoned for simply knowing Christ, walking with Him, obeying Him, and identifying with Him publicly. And then they find themselves thrown in prison because of the persecution of the religious persecution of that part of the world at, at that time. In a prison, in the ancient world, prisons aren't great today. I never want to be in a prison. But ancient prisons were tough places to be because in the ancient world, oftentimes governments did not feel that it was their responsibility to keep you fed as a prisoner or to keep you clothed. We put people in prison today, they're going to get three meals. I'm not saying they're edible, but you're going to get three meals and they're going to give you clothes to wear in there and they're probably going to turn the heat on in the winter. In the ancient world, they didn't feel compelled to supply any of that. So you were completely dependent on not being forgotten by the rest of the body of Christ so that somebody would bring food and clothing and maybe a blanket when the season changed and winter came 
so that you could survive your prison sentence. And the one thing that a prisoner, a Christian in prison, because of spiritual or religious persecution, the worst thought that could come into his mind is that he would be forgotten by the people who were on the outside that became so busy they just went on about their business and he gets forgotten in that place. That's the worst thing that could happen to him. Not just because of what would happen to him physically and the hunger and the cold and all of that, but what would happen to him emotionally and mentally and spiritually as well. To be cut off from contact with the body of Christ and the edification and the encouragement that comes with being in a place where there's two or more Christians gathered together in the name of the Lord. And there's a power about that. And why would the Lord exhort us not to forget except that as a person on the outside is a very, very easy thing to do. And so he tells us to remember them as if we were chained to them. In other words, we are to remember them with the realization that it could just as easily be us that's in prison. Why was I born in the United States of America? I don't know. Why wasn't I born in North Korea or China or Iran or some other Islamic state in the world where it would mean prison for me to be a Christian? Am I better than the North Korean pastor or the North Korean Christian who is in prison, but I'm free. No, I'm not better. And I know, I know better and you know better concerning yourself. It's just the way that it is. And God's providence is ruling over all of it. But there's that realization that if circumstances had just changed a little bit, it could be me in prison who is depending on someone on the outside not forgetting about me rather than somebody else being in the prison and being dependent on the fact and hopeful that you and I in this room will not forget about them. And it produces a good sobriety within our hearts because when we realize that, we're less prone to forget them. And then it causes us to ask the question of ourselves: if the roles were reversed, if I were in his place, what would, would he want me to do? If I was in his place, what would I be thinking? What would I have need of? How much would a visit mean to me? What prayers would I want to have prayed for me? What would I hope that someone would do for my wife and for my children and for my family that I can no longer do simply because of my love for Christ? And we put ourselves in their place and then with our freedom to do what we would want somebody else to do for us. And there are people that are in this place all over the world today, Christians. They are political prisoners for the simple reason that they are Christians. Of course, in the headlines right now is Pastor Saeed Abedini, who is imprisoned in Iran, sentenced recently to eight years in prison in the most notorious prison in Iran for simply 
being a Christian and walking with God in Iran. And it's because Christians, faithful to verse 3 here, determined that he does not end up forgotten. They have solicited and made calls and worked and done all of these things until now the European Center for Law and Justice has filed a formal complaint and request with the UN Human Rights Council in Geneva to call on Iran to immediately release uh, Abedini. But this thing needs to happen concerning every Christian in the world that is lost in these kind of places, that they are not forgotten because it makes us distinctive as a people in a world that otherwise believes out of sight, out of mind, I'm so glad it wasn't me. Maybe you sit here this morning and it is this is the kind of thing that just puts fire in your bones is that these kind of men and women do not get forgotten in prayer, in fellowship, in their need being made known. Why don't you talk with Pastor Matt Phillips on our staff? I would love to have one, two, three, five. has to be of the Holy Spirit. You have to be called by God to do it, to do it right. But to where someone looks and says, this is my calling, and that is to notice these kinds of brothers in these kind of places and to keep this body aware of that and that we can then join with any kind of effort that is going on to secure their release or to put the spotlight upon the injustice of the situation. And it's not going to, way, going to go away. It's going to become a greater and greater need. And it's the responsibility of those who are on the outside to do it what we would wish someone would do for us if we're in a little tiny cell unjustly hoping that the world won't forget. And I don't think that there's any harm done in enlarging verse 3 to include other groups who are forgotten or that are powerless or without a voice in the world that we live in whose priorities are just exactly upside down. I think about the Faithful Friends Ministry here in this in our in our church that meets with. You want to talk about shut-ins? You want to talk about overlooked? You want to talk about powerless? Go to a nursing home. Go to a convalescent hospital. It's the most overlooked mission field in the United States of America because of our, because of we're a youth-oriented culture and we, we do not highly esteem the elderly. And how many people are in those places just hours, sometimes weeks, days, months away from going into eternity, one last chance to hear the gospel? But how many of them know the Lord and love the Lord? But because the family unit has become what it's become, it's all over the place. It used to be you'd get into some kind of a situation and you might not even go into it because you've got six kids and you've got two brothers and you've got an uncle and you've got a cousin over here and you'd be getting visited all the time because nobody moved much from their hometown. But now now you can raise four kids, and uh, one of the daughters is living in Omaha. Another daughter is living in Naples, Florida. Another one's living up in Seattle, and the other one's living someplace else. You don't even know where they are, and the wife has already gone into heaven. And here you are, done a wonderful job raising, but geographically, where are you going to get a kingdom visit? 
unless somebody comes from the outside and does that. And if I was a Christian in that kind of an environment, you couldn't bring enough Christians in to see me, to encourage me, and to partake of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in that person. And I think also of the so many that are in prison for their own crimes, but they come to know the Lord in there, and they're not to be forgotten. And I think about this terrible blight that's going on in the world today with this just sex trade trafficking that's going on of boys and girls and young women and all, and they're caught in this system and drugged and made a mess of and the whole deal, and it's just one of the ugliest parts of the world that we live in right now that's filled with ugliness. Who's going to be their voice? Who's on the outside that can do something and they're powerless? Nobody's going to hear their voice again unless somebody raises a voice for them. And maybe you have a passion related to that kind of an area that in the name of the Lord, you say, I'm not going to allow this kind of thing to happen without it being exposed and people knowing about this and that we pray about this and and we contact governments and officials under the direction of the Holy Spirit after prayer or whatever we need to do to break these kind of things. And it's a need. There are so many people who are caught in these kind of prisons And they depend 100% on the fact that they will not be forgotten by someone on the outside. And to love Christians with a brotherly love and to be hospitable to them and to remember them when they're imprisoned and to remember that they depend upon us for encouragement and to be their voice so that they're not forgotten. I'll tell you, it requires the most valuable thing that we have to obey verses 1 through 3. And the thing that it requires is our time. Now, in the sermon that I have just taught related to verses 1 through 3, is a funny kind of sermon. Because the overwhelming majority of us will be tempted to allow that to go into our mind and become a part of a knowledge reservoir and say, that's good to know. But the second that Samuel's done leading us in the closing song, all of the things that already crowd our life will crowd out every bit of these three verses and we'll be off and running in our rat race once again. So when God tells us that these three verses are to be a part of each of our lives as Christians and they do not have an expression in our Christian life at all, it means our priorities are wrong. How we're spending our time is wrong. And it means us, with a great maturity, of just coming to the Lord and saying to Him, Lord, I don't know how to shoehorn this in on top of everything else. We're a busy nation. And we're a busy people. And I'm not saying that everyone in this room is too busy about the wrong things because that's not true about everybody in the room. But we can look at something like this and completely dismiss it independent of prayer when if we took it to the Lord in prayer and say, how, Lord, does this fit? And the Lord might say, you're watching four hours of television every day. 
that could fit right in there and more. Or you're on that computer one to two hours every single day. All of this could be expressed on a weekly basis in that time. And the time that you spend on the computer only leaves you more depressed for having been on it. And it really requires just coming again with a sobriety and saying, Lord, this is important to you. It's important that this be a family. It's important that this looks this way. And I want to be a part of that. And then allow him to speak to us and then to do that. And it's only going to become more necessary as time goes on and as the shaking continues. We're going to need each other more in a way that as Americans we can't even begin to believe how we're going to need one another Because the culture that has fashioned us and the priorities of this culture as opposed to the priorities of what the body of Christ is to be in this world are so opposed to one another that those priorities that we've received from the outside, they will be broken. They will be shaken. We will become this. You can bet everything you own on the fact that we will become, verses 1 through 3, because necessity will force it. But better to do it the easy way before it becomes a necessity and to realize, I need a family like this. And so I want to be like this to every Christian I run into. And I want to be this in the local church that I belong to. And I want to do it not only for my own good and my own blessing so that what I need will be strong around me. And I want to not only do it in order to bless other Christians, but I want to do it so that the kingdom of God will be truly distinctive in a holy way, in a beautiful way from the world that is self-destructing around us every single day and so that people will know there's another kingdom and another option and another way of life just like somebody told us so that they can then come into the kingdom that will not be shaken. So this is one of these messages that's just like where people look and say, well, that was very interesting, long but interesting. Or someone will say, well, he'll probably be better next week. It's not one of those kind of sermons. It's one of those that we look at and say, I see it, Lord. I get it. Now you rework my life to give these the priority in my life that they are to you. Because I know I'm going there and you will get me there whether by force or by surrender. And I want to do it by surrender. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Thank you, Lord, for your kingdom. Thank you that it's unshakable. Thank you for the family that it is. We need a family 
and you knew it and you know it and you've provided one. And Lord, we just pray and ask by the work of your Holy Spirit in each one of our lives that you would continue to move us away from a cultural Christianity or Christianity that is dominated by the priorities and the world all around us. And we ask that you continue to move us into the Christianity that is real and the Christianity that is necessary and the only Christianity that will stand and be meaningfully different in the world that we live in. And we give you permission, Lord, and indeed we ask that you would do that in our lives, Lord, and that in some way what you have expressed of your heart in these three verses would be being expressed through each and every one of our Christian lives in some way. And we ask it of you in Jesus' name. Amen.